early Cronenberg. Oh no. He's still listening. This is our final transmission. Jamie. Hello, Sam. How's it going? Pretty down good. It is so hot. I'm uh, I'm like one degree away from a knotted handkerchief on my head. Like that's that's how <laughs> you could work a knotted handkerchief. I think. I you think we both could. Out. Oh yeah, I mean we're both equipped, <laughs> or not, yeah. as the case may be. We're equipped yeah. for handkerchiefs. We're ill-equipped uh, in the hair department. Yeah. I've been getting lots of injuries on my head since going bald. You forget that even like the thinnest bit of hair is protection against like projectiles and doors and things like that. Yeah. My head is just like a scarred mess. My head looks like some sort of mutant penis firing out of a woman's body. Oh. It's a weird thing to say. <laughs> yeah. For no reason at all. I'm sure there's some, some context for that at some point. I wonder if there's some sort of thematic relevance. Hey, so do you want to talk about a horror film? I would love to. I would absolutely love specifically to talk about a horror movie that I watched last night and today called uh we're gonna have to decide on pronunciation here do you go rabid or rabid i I go rabid i like rabid yeah everybody in the movie says rabid yeah and they go rabid they speak french so they're cultured very cultured uh french canadian yeah movie so rabid for those who don't know is a 1977 david cronenberg film his second feature um, was produced by Ivan Reitman in his exploitation movie phase before he hit the mainstream with Animal House uh, and moved to America. Presumably. Some may say his heyday. Yeah. It's weird, like, a, a lot of, like, people who got their start in, like, exploitation and horror have always sort of moved into goofy comedy. There's definitely some connective tissue, right? Yeah. The budget, mainly. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so uh, Ivan Reitman, he he was there doing stuff. His film stars erstwhile porn starlet Marilyn Chambers, who you may know from your dad's special video collection. My dad's video collection was pretty limited, let me tell you. She was not in the kind of movies that <laughs> that I found in that drawer. Oh, really? No. Was it a lot of horse stuff? <laughs> uh, what hers or my dad's collection <laughs> yeah those horses it's, the less said about it the better stands to reason like you're the nearest thing that the UK has to a cowboy <laughs> so you think I grew up on horse porn <laughs> yeah why not I think mean, um, that's a pretty good so I hope that everyone who knows me is making the same assumption just not saying it out loud yeah he looks like a man desperate to, to ride or be ridden by a horse. <laughs> I'm hiding it well, then. Yes. So am I right in thinking that you took a big bite of this David Cronenberger and came up grinning? Yeah, I mean, this is a, this is a film that has been a, a firm fave of mine for a long time in a specific context. It's, it's quite slow. It sort of paces up as it goes through. But yeah, no, I think it's, I think it's got a lot a lot going for it particularly if you want to examine like the genesis of the Cronenberg which is a thing that I like to do 
One of the things that I really love about David Cronenberg, and I think it's a thing that he does more than anybody else, even people who are working in the 70s, mm. is that he's got... People talk about, like, Cronenbergian to mean, like, twisted, freakish, monster creatures. But I think there's a real Cronenbergian face of actors. He just casts, like, the pug ugliest fuckers in the world. And it's beautiful. He definitely gravitates towards a specific kind of lineup. Yeah. Like, there's definitely a lot of strength in the face of a lot of the male characters in particular. And yeah. actually in the female characters as well. There's a lot of beauty at both ends, but I think, yeah, strong, uh, not like a physically strong presence, but a real, like, I guess, like spotlight hogging face for one reason or another. There's plenty of that in this movie for sure. Absolutely. A lot of a lot of strong eyebrows, a lot of pronounced foreheads. Absolutely. A lot of huge jaw lines, like the widest jaws on earth. I love it. That's just something really special stuff. to me about about casting ugly actors because mm-hmm. like it just doesn't happen anymore everybody on film is the most beautiful person in the world that's very true and and every movie we've done so far on this podcast has broken that rule pretty roundly you yeah. know at least if, if we're not being kind of judgmental about it and saying what we think is and isn't attractive everyone has been really interesting looking right the way from the burning up until <laughs> up until present day it's been a huge range of great faces to look at and this movie doesn't disappoint in that regard not at all yeah absolutely i think one of the really interesting things about this film is is the casting of marilyn chambers i think that she has got this amazing look she looks so innocent and so yeah just like a real person like a, a, a beautiful person but like a person that you might see on the street mm. um, obviously that's what's made her good in this role and and in her other work um, that's probably a, a factor in that. Um, yeah. She was actually the only cast in this to help the movie sell at Cannes. Really? Basically, the Ivan Reitman said that European distributors would only really be interested in the film like this if it had a, a famous porn star in it. Oof. Was he right? What do you think? I, I mean, it's sold. Yeah. Am I right in thinking originally Sissy Spacek was considered for the role? Which would have made it a completely different feast. Yeah. So I think what I read in Cronenberg on Cronenberg, which is my favourite of the director-on-director series. Nice. Nice little pump. Yeah, basically, Cronenberg didn't like her Texas accent. Interesting. And she didn't have any sort of, uh, what's the word, any star power at that point. I, I, I think that Carrie came out while they were filming. Right. So a bit of a missed opportunity there. Yeah, apparently there's a, a poster for Carrie uh, just outside the, the porn theatre. A few, a few nods to Carrie, I think obviously deliberate. But the yeah, some kind of sissy space, that connection there, a Carrie connection. Very interesting, like horror world yeah. through lines. Do you want to talk us through the movie a little bit? Yeah, so the plot of this movie, are you familiar with the, the poem The Sick Rose by William Blake? I'm not, but I get the feeling I'm about to become. So familiar. the poem The Sick Rose by William Blake um, I couldn't find anything that linked this poem to the movie. Mm-hmm. Like, I Googled it, I've been through this book, I've read a couple of different books on Cronenberg in my time, and I couldn't find anything that links this poem to this movie. But this poem, O Rose, Thou Art Sick, the invisible worm that flies in the night in the howling storm, has found out thy bed of crimson joy, and his dark secret love does thy life destroy. That is the plot of this movie, right? That sums it up. Yeah, absolutely. So 
Wow, how do you how, how did you do that in school or something? I'm, I'm a big William Blake fan. Ah, okay. So you've got worlds colliding here on this thing. Yeah, it just it's, it's insane to me that there's nothing out there that links this yeah. poem and this movie when it's it's at least must have factored in. We know that Cronenberg is a fan of William Blake. They mm. they sort of touch on that a bit in Naked Lunch. There's like a bit more of a William Blake thing there. Obviously, William Blake, uh, William Blake and um, William Burroughs. There was some crossover there as well. But yeah, so anyway, the plot of this film, right? Rose, the lead character, Marilyn Chambers, is given skin grafts after being badly burned in a motorcycle accident. These give her some sort of mutation. I, I guess because the tissue is, was it medically neutral or something like that is the phrase that... I didn't understand a single word of that stuff. <laughs> I rewound it. I was like, nope. <laughs> no idea what you're talking about. I wonder if that's some sort of like primer, like just let's speak really technically and people believe it because they don't, they'll never understand it. Could be. It may not have even been that technical. I yeah, just, maybe. Uh, when surgery starts happening on film, I'm just a little bit like, so who knows? Interesting. I'm going to log yeah. that for later. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> So uh, Rose, after these skin grafts or internal skin grafts, because she can't get to a real hospital to fix yeah. her up after she's been in this accident, uh, grows a butthole in her armpit that has a penis that comes out of it and stabs people. Um, the people, end. people that are stabbed become infected and they hunger for human flesh or at least blood. Um, and then they in turn infect other people before they die. Their life cycle is about seven hours. Rose is initially confined to a resort for plastic surgery, but she takes her insanity on the road on the road and leaves a trail of infected people as she makes her way to Montreal. Where it gets real. It gets pretty fucking real. I read somewhere that this is one of the highest grossing French Canadian films of all time. And I can't imagine that's true because this must have grossed like five hundred quid. <laughs> no, um, I, I think this grossed around seven million. Then it's entirely possible. Yeah, I think it, I think the budget was half a mil. Yeah, I mean so it, the it did pretty well. Whoa! Oh shit! I guess that's why they call it Phantom Power. Jamie, an album whose artwork I hate, but whose music I love. Can you guess it? Uh, Back to the Party by Summer. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> Fucking right. Uh, it's Better Whenever by Elway. Better Whenever. A superb album, I think. I used to think this album was underrated and then I looked at how much people listen to it and it turns out it's not underrated at all. People absolutely fucking love it. Uh, 2015, a Red Scare release. You ever heard this record? I don't know if I have, you know. I, I, I dabbled in Elway. Yeah. I, I want to say it was pre-2015. One of my favourite Red Scare bands, uh, one of my favourite thinking persons, punk rock bands. Got a lot of love for, for Elway and and its members. Our Lady of the Thompson River, Albuquerque Low, Better Whenever. That's the strongest three starter tracks I think I've ever heard on a Red Scare record. It's an absolute bingo, bango, bongo, banger. you got to get out and get this record. Nice. Artwork sucks. It's a real shame. But everything else about it rips. And uh, back to the show. <laughs> I gotta say, the opening scene, I was I was fascinated. I thought, 
because I knew nothing about the plot. I deliberately didn't even look at the cover. I just kind of held my thumb over it. And because this is a movie I heard nothing about. So I was very interested by that opening scene. The, the characters in the opening scene are exactly what we talk about when we talk about Cronenberg faces. Everyone looks amazing. The, the scene is set with some, some pretty great music, some wonderful like set pieces, some nice camera pans, some road footage, a cool motorcycle, a cool guy and a cool gal on a motorcycle, what's not to love, and then a horrific crash. So, you know, I'm pretty much in straight away. There's an enormous explosion. To ki- Anytime there's like a horribly mutilating explosion involving a motorcycle in a movie, I think that's a great uh, opening. Yeah, I would me, put this in, in one of my top five, like... Uh, vehicle accidents or vehicle collisions yeah. in, in film. It felt like a made-for-TV movie accident, but in all the all the ways that I like, you yeah. know, in all the best ways. And I feel like from really early on, we're getting some very interesting camera angles and some stuff that I, I don't know if most people associate with Cronenberg, but some very inventive use of like limited space and you know some cool color work. So I was into it for for the for the beginning, and and the the shot that really sold it for me is. As the motorbike crashes and bursts into flames, there's uh, lots of plastic surgery patients at this uh, at this hospital who are obviously out and about having recreation time or whatever. And there's a woman watching with binoculars and she, you can see bandages in cross shapes under her eyes from the binoculars. So it looks like she's kind of sightlessly looking through these binoculars. Very eerie scene, very arresting shot. It's up nice and close. You see the, the fire in the distance. And then they go out to retrieve the bodies. And I thought that was a cool way to go into a movie, for sure. But then Marilyn Chambers' rose is trapped under the bike, slowly burning. Yes. And I, I'm guessing it's at that point when you texted me when you said, <laughs> burning in films puts me off. Skin what? stuff. I'm a little bit lee around skin stuff. Uh, and he was it's, the, the, it's all the, skin the, stuff. No, I know, but like, uh, I guess... It's more about the removal of skin in certain ways. Uh, just we kind of gets right under my skin. But there was a great line from the surgeon who says, we're removing full thickness. I think he says full thickness tissue. And I was like, here we go. It's going to be bad. <laughs> we're using a radical plastic surgery technique, he said. And I was like, oh, God, it's going to be awful, isn't it? And it wasn't actually that bad. It was a relatively yeah. tasteful. Yeah, apart from that one, scene. that one scene where you see like the big rectangle of skin come off see i thought that didn't get me too bad because it 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 looked pretty amazingly fake you could see the entire like the edges of the square all the way up until the peel off bit and i was just a bit like that's fine i'm not that doesn't look real so i'm fine (laughs) (laughs) but the um the line that's whispered to rose as she eventually wakes up maybe i'm getting ahead of myself a little bit but the uh the orderly or the attendant or the nurse or whoever he is says, you were in a really spectacular motorcycle accident. I was like, all right, <laughs> big enough of him, or why don't you? That's a, a fun thing in this movie is that there are, because Cronenberg is pretty green here and like yeah. isn't, isn't the Cronenberg that we know and love mm. of later days, I think there are some really interesting approaches to line readings here that mm. make you think completely different things about characters. And I'm not sure that they're, on purpose. Okay. I'm not. I'm not sure that this is like a scene where Doctor Keloid is talking to Rose, and he says, "I have done my best." Instead of "I've done my best," yeah. And it and it it, it, it makes the 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 whole character different. 
Like right. it, it makes him arrogant. It makes him condescending. It makes you feel like sure. he should. He feels like Rose should be like bowing to him for what he's done, yeah. as opposed to what I would assume that what I would read that as if I was reading the script. It would be I've done my best. Like I'm really yeah. trying here. And those those choices, and there are so many weird choices in this movie that right. that that a seasoned director wouldn't make, but I think they they just really work for me. I think it's a really interesting take, and I think some of those lines stand out more than they would have as written. Maybe you, yeah, I mean, we're speculating, obviously, but like maybe that's him giving the actors too much room. Maybe that's everything being first take for the sake of you know speed and and money. Maybe it's uh. Maybe it's a little bit passive, you know, maybe he's leaning back in his chair a little bit, letting them take things a bit too far, potentially. But I think you're right. I think in terms of the dialogue in this movie, I had no no major criticism of the writing or the delivery of a lot of these lines. I think the acting, for the most part... Did you uh, not have any You didn't have any criticism of the line, <laughs> I've got something that you can drink and it ain't whiskey? <laughs> Listen, no, I don't have any criticism of that line. It was things like that that kind of kept me in the movie, to be honest. Full disclosure... I didn't like this movie, but I'm not going to focus on the reasons why I didn't like it. I'm going to focus on the re- the things I took away from it that I thought were uh, enjoyable. So, you know, we're removing full thickness is is a terrifying way to talk about skin surgery. Do you know what I mean? There's a lot of ways you could have approached surgeon dialogue and there's a lot of tropes and there's a lot of uh, traps, I think. And there's a lot of ways to make it very bland. And I think he, he doesn't do that at all. I think anytime there's an opportunity for anything even remotely playful or an expression of who David Cronenberg is in the form of dialogue, which classically, not not necessarily what he's famous for. Do you know what I mean? Mm. I think he's doing well with not much here. I think it's... Who wrote the movie? Do you know? David Cronenberg. Oh, he wrote it as well. See? Yeah. So so that makes that makes perfect sense to me. Maybe he's in more control of the script than, than we realise. But um, the whole initial setting of this plastic surgery clinic could have been played for shock, could have been played for shock horror, and it could have been grisly and bleak and dark and but it's not there's elements of comedy there's elements of lightness to it it is very isolated it's off in the woods Hmm. and all the woodland shots are pretty beautiful so that made me feel uneasy you know beautiful woodland shots not playing the place for pure horror having it be relatively normal if a little bit radical and off the map having everyone be genuinely helpful and not like crazy molesters like you expect in any horror hospital set the tension quite high you're wondering where the threat's coming from and what the ominous thing is going to be so i think that was done really well uh what did you think of that whole like opening sequence i, I love the the way this movie starts i love the way that it, it builds that mood and because i'm uh, a cronenberg head so what we say mm. i'm i'm always thinking like what's he trying to say about plastic surgery what's he trying to say about what plastic surgery means when it's when that's the setting for this movie and I think that he just really likes the idea of people changing, mm-hmm. people people changing themselves or people growing and moving forward. And he, I mean, he touches on that obviously in The Fly, in Existence as well. But I can't quite figure out what he's saying about plastic surgery specifically. Mm-hmm. And I, I and I do wish that there was a bit more of 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 the plastic surgery stuff because it's so it seems so integral. Mm. Well, obviously, it's it's integral to what happens to Rose, but besides that one scene, and like you see a couple of people in in the in the clinic um, who sort of look weird and otherworldly, 
which I think is all done through makeup and just looks pretty good, I think. Yeah. It's a really good way of making people look like they have plastic surgery when I'm assuming that they didn't have plastic surgery. Sure. Making people look a bit boxy and, and stretched and... Quite like flat panels almost of makeup on their heads. Yeah. It does interesting things with the light for sure. I think there's also in the in the early uh, in the early scenes there's a guy who's jogging wearing a jumper that says jogging kills. Oh really? I must have missed that. That sounds great. I was I couldn't focus on what was happening in the scene at all. <laughs> because he's just jogging with his little jumper that says jogging kills. I'm like nice. that's not an accident. Like why No. And we know that Cronenberg has a sense of humour. Yeah. But it's weird that the sense of humour in this is always on the periphery. It's not like Jeff Goldblum's dialogue in The Fly where he's so sure. fun and energetic. It's always like... I think the humour in this, at the beginning especially, is is designed to make you feel weird. Yeah. You're in this place where like loads of serious stuff is happening and everyone's just a bit sort of kooky and weird and they, they speak strange and they look weird and they're kind of goofy. Maybe that's just Canada. Well, yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe that's just Montreal. Well, they do pick up a lot of hitchhikers, but that guy in the barn was definitely going to rape her. Definitely. A lot of rapey guys. I yeah. That's a whole a whole theme unto itself. But I think the, the weirdness... For me, it felt almost... felt a little bit Garth Marenghi in that you've got what feels like a really serious horror score mixed with things that are a little bit funny, but you're not entirely sure if they're meant to be or not. Yeah. <laughs> it's like... It's kind of playing on that a little bit, I think. It seems quite self-aware, but I'm never quite sure to what extent it's, it's being silly or it's coming off as silly. So maybe that was part of why it wasn't quite hitting for me in the beginning. You know, as you move deeper into the movie, I think what we what we got that was a real treat is a really varied score. There's a lot of different soundscape type stuff being experimented with here. Um, for a minute, you think you're in danger of just having a synth trilly, high synth, emphasizing high tension and low synth emphasizing ominous and then it completely switches the the tempo and changes entirely to a completely different set of instruments and you get some some really interesting tonal changes from the music and some great juxtaposition with music and scenery so the whole way through the movie i'm i'm pretty hooked in that regard you know like sensorily i did find for the same reason i found extra so hard to swallow i found so much of the internal space in this movie to be absolutely abhorrent to look at. I found so many places so hard to be in. And I know it's deliberate. I know it's designed to... So I wonder if that's like a... Because we're so used to like American films, Hollywood films, or even like low budget, like not quite Hollywood, Hollywood films, Mm. that when you see something that's that's just not... Especially from this time, a super low budget, like Extro. Extro was filmed in like, what, Kent? For like nobody, yeah. like you're not. Yeah, it's never going to feel like a Hollywood film, and you've got it mostly you, like abandoned buildings and stuff. Yeah, like yeah. So and and similarly with this, this is like even it's not even Toronto. It's like it's Montreal. It's yeah. like a, a whole different world. Yeah. So like, yeah, I wonder if it's just because we're so we're so accustomed to the American style of filmmaking or like the the Hollywood approach that everybody always tries to get. Doing Hollywood in Montreal or Kent or Nigeria, like it's always going to be different and unnerving and jarring. It, it it's terrifying to me, and I think it's because I know it's a horror movie. You know, 
I don't get freaked out by the 70s show because of the decor, but give me that kind of decor and make it really lived in to the point where I know it's real. There's no way that's a set. There's no way they've made any decisions about what goes on in that room besides what was there when they walked in. And that is unnerving to me. And you're right, it's because I think our palette and our diet is very contrived. Sometimes it's all CG and we don't even realize it. You know, I'm not saying everything's really shiny and perfect because most things are over the top shit looking. And that's that's a problem. I think that's messed with our palettes. But hmm. maybe it's like snuff movie terror to me. It's like it's way too fucking real in this room. <laughs> if, if the room is really real, what's about to happen in it is going to be really scary to me. So uh, it always makes me feel kind of greasy and penned in and very weird. And like I don't know what's lurking just out of shot. Whether it's a conscious device or not, I don't know. But it works really well on people like me who find mm. surgery, skin, burns, and horrible-looking old rooms in the middle of nowhere genuinely horrifying. <laughs> and there's a lot going on in this movie in those kind of spaces. So yeah. I was pretty pumped to, to see that happen. So on the score that you were you talking about, I yeah. I was also a big fan of the score. Great. I, I don't know who did it. I couldn't, find, I couldn't find out. I couldn't figure it out. Hmm. I, I, made, I made a note that it's like, you think you're getting like a John Carpenter score mm-hmm. and then it moves into like Mike Oldfield. I think it's obviously predominantly synth and uh, with a few like nice piano lines that are probably yeah. also on the synth. But like there's just something really, really pleasant about it. And it like, it does the thing that, that is that is really modern. Like I mean, there's a lot of stuff in there, like you say, like big stings to like make you think that you're supposed to be jumping even though... Mm-hmm. Nothing massively jumpy happens. When it moves into like more sort of beautiful piano pieces, like mm. over, over repeating lines and things like that, I think it, it ends up doing something really modern, which is like juxtaposing the music to what you're seeing on screen, mm-hmm. which I mean feels really modern because obviously it's a, a thing that Tarantino does and Robert Rodriguez and like those those directors. I mean, it was things that people were doing back in the day, like in the in the uh, that one scene in Dawn of the Dead, for example. Sure. But um, but yeah, it's like it it feels really modern to me. Yeah, that trick it must have been pretty ahead of its time in in those kind of terms. It's not it's not a memorable score. You don't walk away humming any of it. There's no like motif pieces that you attach to a character or anything like that. Really, that stuck with me, especially in the early stages and in the the sort of heightened you know drama phases of the movie. I think it did its job really well. So, what do you think of? Marilyn Chambers and and the performance that she gives. Ah, uh, I gotta be hundred percent honest. Not much. I found it. I found her really forgettable. And because there's not a lot of meat there in terms of a character, she feels like a sort of. She feels more like a vehicle for uh, action in the movie, which isn't how I like my you know female leads in yeah. movies. Really, for me, the when she was at her best was when she was playing part in like a kind of a tableau scene or something. Uh, there's some shots outside the um, well in the city basically any shot in the city where there's like neon lights behind her she looks absolutely incredible she's lit like in a by a genius like everything looks amazing in those scenes and they're brief and they're really played to kind of remind you basically how beautiful she is I think yeah. and to pull you back to the the juxtaposition between the terror of what she's doing to people and what she looks like and her presence in the world and how she's kind of a silent killer in a lot of ways so I thought those moments were fantastic. But in terms of performance, a few decent moments, some great portrayals of like genuine pain um, when she's trying to resist 
killing her friend. I, I felt pretty moved by the performance. I thought that was pretty great. But overall, I just felt like she was just drifting a lot of the time. And I know that's the point. I know she is a, a drifter in the movie for, for the most part. But not enough, uh, not enough background or flesh, really, mm. no pun intended, to to grab onto in terms of her, you know, who she was before this horrible accident. I would have liked a little bit more of that potentially. But that's not to say I wanted to see more before the accident, and I didn't want loads of, you know, exposition and flashbacks and whatever else. But you know, she felt a little bit nothing to me. I've got to be honest in terms of the the performance and the character. What about you? Yeah. Well, I sort of agree, but I also. I think there's a bit more there in terms of not characterization, and I think mm. her character is a is a bit of a mixed bag. She's mm. one scene she's really sort of sexually aggressive, like in the the porno theater or in mm. the hot tub or whatever it is with that woman, and then some scenes she's really passive, mm-hmm. and it's like we never really get a read on like on her. The film wants you to think that she's passive because she's she's a passenger on. The journey that her armpit penis is taking her. Sure. Like they don't want us to dislike her, do they? For that, no. They want us to have the empathy that she's been taken over by something. It's it's hard because it's the way that it's shot. It doesn't delineate between those moments, and that's no. and that's a choice. I, I reckon that David Cronenberg's made that is that the people contain multitudes, and mm. like there's there's never going to be a, 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 a switch that flicks and says right. Now I'm a bad person, and you can tell because I've got a goatee. It's just um, just a thing that happens, and I think that's that's what Cronenberg's trying to get across there. And I think like she starts off with very little to do apart from mm-hmm. be sort of sexy mm-hmm. in a in a unthreatening way until it's very threatening. Sure. I think towards the end when she starts to sort of realise that she's the she's the problem, mm. she manages to really do some good stuff. But like, she's never going to be Shea Wiggum in in Splinter. Splinter, was yeah. Just like giving bags and bags of pathos to that character that is probably the thinnest character ever written. And like we said, could have been awful. Could yeah. have been a completely, you know, dog guts performance. I I don't I don't know what could have been done differently here. I really don't. I, I the cynic in me says cast a porn star and have the tagline that she goes around killing people for sexual gratification to sell more tickets. And I don't particularly respect that, to be honest, especially when you don't really deliver on it in the end. Like, that's one type of movie, isn't it? And this doesn't really end up being that. It ends up being a bit more artsy. It ends up being a little bit less cut to fit. So a bit of a mixed bag in terms of her performance, for sure. And you're right. I think think the people contain multitudes angle is totally valid. There might have just been some slightly different ways to to pull that out of her i think in terms of performance but mm. i definitely didn't dislike it i wasn't sitting there thinking oh my god she's terrible or that's unconvincing or anything like that i just found it a little bit like it was passing me by the main problem is i wasn't scared in this movie at all i didn't find yeah. any of it frightening in the end even though i thought i would i didn't really find the concept that scary or the 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 actual you know creature effects or anything like that uh, i didn't find her threatening or intimidating really even in the the moments when she's at her most sort of predatory, which I thought was quite cool. I thought having her be deceptive and predatory and like a Venus flytrap was a really cool decision and angle to take with the character. But there was nothing really hitting the fear button for me, apart from the decor. Yeah, and the and the flesh. Yeah. But yeah, I think the main issue with this film for me, the thing that sort of really makes it fall down, mm. and, and my major criticism is that 
besides Marilyn Chambers, everybody else is either like chum no. to get eaten or poked with a spiky armpit just penis. Poked, yeah. Or like they're just terrible and ineffective mm. and ineffectual and awful. Like her boyfriend who does nothing for the entire movie and then sort of does something at the end, but not really. Mm. And like everybody else is just sort of weird. Even the people that, that aren't chum are still chum. Like uh, the other guy who's got a baby who's at one point watching cartoons and he says, oh, yeah. look how the hot dog likes the ketchup or whatever, whatever the fuck it is. I forgot about that entire scene, yeah. And like that's in there because you you want the baby to be in peril, or Cronenberg sure. wants you to want to feel peril for the baby. Yeah. Which I mean, it pays off. You get a little baby blood at the end. Again, is is Cronenberg being like he's teasing you? He's like, yeah. you don't think I'll do this, do you? You don't think yeah. I'm going to kill this baby? Well, there you go. There's a dead baby for you. And it's not it's not that we're like spoiled by Friday the Thirteenth style chum characters because. We complain about them too. It's just that the the pitch of those characters has to be right. It has to be that they're interesting in some way, so they're fun to watch. Yeah. But we also don't mind slash want them to die, uh, and we want to see the inventive scenario in which that happens. For me, I, I made a note that she's just dishing out more bear hugs than Andre the Giant. For for a long time <laughs> in this movie, she's just hugging people until they you know sort of die, and I was intrigued like what's happening here. But I didn't, also didn't really care that much, which was a bummer because you, you want to care about how people are dying. And I didn't care because I didn't really care that they were dying. And it wasn't done visually interestingly enough for me to really be like, oh, move out of the way. I want to see what's going on. So found that kind of tricky. But, you know, that being said, I mean, that leaves a lot to the imagination. It keeps you keeps you watching for the next kill, I guess. But I completely concur. I think um, too many of these people in this movie are not memorable enough not active enough and not not lack the character and substance for you to want something to happen to them either way you're not rooting i wasn't rooting for anyone to survive in this movie but i also wasn't really excited to see people die so it was kind of just happening and that's around the point where I, i made the note that the i respected that the pacing was pretty measured but it was starting to plod a little bit and then and then my next note was crazy dick so that's obviously the first time you see the dick and you think right okay so we're dealing with some kind of mutant proboscis penis flying out of her armpit. And that hooks you back in. So maybe the pacing is, in fact, perfect at this point in the movie. Yeah. It starts to plod and then you get mutant alien rabies dick flying out of the uh, the old pit. Yeah, and then, and then it, like, it, it sort of gathers momentum as it becomes yeah. more and more of a zombie film. Yeah. I think it's... I don't know if you've seen Cronenberg's first feature, Shivers... Um, which is a similar plot. It's about a... A sailor? Shiver me timbers? <laughs> is it just a happy-go-lucky sailor it's rom-com? N- it's not. Shivers, his first film, is about parasitic organisms that turn people into pure sexual desire. Right. Which manifests itself through violence. Mm-hmm. Which is obviously a very similar plot to this. Sure. But he's sort of obviously playing with that a little bit. That's I, I think at this point he's known for the sexualized horror films mm-hmm. through an artistic lens guy. Sure. So I think this this obviously plays as a, almost a direct sequel to his first film Shivers or They Came From Within, as it was also known. Um, but I also think it works as a as a retelling of Night of the Living Dead. 
Okay. There's, there's a lot of um, a lot of crossover with characters and situations that you see in Night of the Living Dead or in Romero's sort of early zombie work. Mm-hmm. The army or the the militia guys just like cleaning up mm-hmm. the sort of weird commonplace zombies, like looking. Obviously, they're not called zombies in this, but they never are, are they? Just sort of looking like real people or who just happen to be captured as a, 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 a weird moment like Santa or... Yeah, just um, people in a shopping mall, like everyday yeah. people, basically, yeah. Yeah, Santa isn't a zombie, but he gets shot anyway in front of a load of kids. He does. Um, Santa gets mown down by the by the cops. <laughs> so funny. That was a highlight for me, to be honest. Yeah. That was one of the best moments in the movie, I think. It's a really funny scene. I think... Is is that's when uh, her little mate is is watching, and she's in the mall. Is that right, or is it her? I can't remember. It's in the mall, yeah. And the the cop, for some inexplicable reason, has an amazing machine gun. It looks like a Tommy gun. It just mows down Santa and his elves. Like, <laughs> well, he's he's trying to kill the the infected yeah. person, but he misses. I mean, he has he a machine gun and he's just spraying. <laughs> yeah, like, he's like surprised. Oh, I killed Santa. Like he literally, like a second ago, a second before this, there was a child on Santa's lap. Yeah, exactly. And that's again, I think you see the machine gun, you see the kid on Santa's lap, and and it's it's that game of chicken that Cronenberg is playing with the audience, and this time the audience wins. Speaking of chicken, you know the moment where the crazy farmer who is infected half a barbecue chicken to go. Yeah, he has a barbecue chicken to go, and he's just shoveling it into his mouth. You know when they report his death. On the radio yeah. or the TV, I can't remember which one it is. Do you remember how old they say he is? No, go on. How old do you think he looks? Like, well, I don't know, 58? 43. <laughs> I was like, that's dangerously close to. Fucking... Yeah, that's only five years old. I was like, what? This guy looks fucking 70. <laughs> I thought that was hysterical. 43 year old farmer. What? what, what? Yeah, he, he, was, he was interesting at least. He was a creepy, molestery old farmer who thought that Rosie was just, what, like, hugging his cow or something? And he, he got what was coming to him uh, in the eye. There's a, there's a weird thing that, I've, that I find in films about people who develop sexually violent tendencies mm. where, do they, like, release special pheromones that get people to, to get people to sexually assault them? Because I think what it might be is just they're women. Uh, and therefore, yeah, <laughs> true. gravitate towards them. This might be a really early take on just being a woman gets you fucked with unnecessarily constantly. And let's showcase it and commit some horrific violence against uh, the perpetrators, the creeps and the scumbags. Which is the most gratifying part of the movie for me is seeing these, you know, mostly they're oddballs, mostly they're creeps, mostly they're overstepping their boundaries and being super inappropriate and you know what happens to them is um pretty extreme there's not really anyone are you defending sexual assault (laughs) not not extreme on balance (laughs) extreme objectively they're penetrated by brutal fucking rabies dicks out of an armpit until they become zombies as objectively extreme um (laughs) i'm trying to think to myself like the way that the doctor gets it, the main, Keloid, the main guy. Yeah. He was the only character I really liked in the movie. And I feel like we lost him too soon. All right. Is it, do you, did you like him because he looks a bit like Joe Dante? Uh, yeah, partly. I liked him because he looks like a bunch of Hollywood actors of the time just rolled around in hair 
uh, like grease him up, roll him around in hair, and throw him in front of the camera. I thought his, I, I did think he, I made a lot of notes about his line delivery, same as you, and he had a real presence, which I thought was great. And he was the only person I felt bad for when they were, you know, dick stabbed. So I don't know whether that speaks to like the fact that he wasn't being a creepy perv or the fact that he was just an in- interesting character and a well well rendered character in the movie. Well, I think the people that you feel that you're meant to feel bad for, they mm. sort of die off screen. Or they, they get jabbed off screen, don't they? So that, I think that removes some True. of the the power of what those scenes yeah. would be like because you there are three significant like attacks that happen off screen. There's the keloid, there's her little friend yeah. who has hinted that there's some gay stuff happening there. And yeah. then there's the guy in the in the porn theatre, which I don't understand. But like it, it really sort of those two first two, like mm. there's some there's there would be some real power in seeing those those people die because those are the characters that we like. Yeah. Um, and we and want those... to see the expressions on their faces, right? We want to see either the betrayal or just the surprise or whatever it is. That's what that's what makes what <laughs> it's going to sound bad, but that's what makes watching people you like die so fun. <laughs> like that's what's rewarding about it, right? So yeah, that's absolutely. an interesting choice. Do you think he's is he experimenting there? Is it a is it a failed attempt at something? What what's going on there? Because it's wholly deliberate. It's not an edit, you know. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it might be an edit. It might be that they just mm. didn't get it. Uh, it might be that the the prosthetics or whatever looked shit that day. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. That's a good point. Maybe. But um, but like, I, I, I don't know why you would want to do that unless he's he's just sort of playing with expectations and like the yeah. he knows that there are three characters in this film that you're meant to like and mm. those are two of them. So yeah, why not suck all the power out of it? As a, as a member of the audience, it it doesn't it doesn't work for me as as well as it could. Yeah, I think I completely agree. I liked um, when you when you see the doctor and he's zombied up, and he leaps up at the meat wagon door, and he's obviously got the green foam coming out of the mouth. I thought it was an absolute touch. I thought that looked awesome, and he's got the the sort of Night of the Living Dead or Day of the Dead. Dawn of the Dead style makeup. It's just mm. kind of like flat green. I thought the look of him in particular, not all the zombies for me worked. Not, I mean, from then onwards, I didn't find them scary really. But the fact that he jumps up in the meat wagon window and he's foaming and he's going nuts at the window worked really well for me. And uh, maybe that's the point where we're sad about uh, what happens to the doctors. We see what he's reduced to. Yeah. He goes from being a, a, you know, I don't know. I don't know if we respect him as a surgeon at this point. I'm not sure if we're supposed to or not, but he goes well, from he's that the, to... He's the Colonel Sanders of plastic surgery. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> he totally is. Give me a bargain bucket. I mean, there's, again, some great dialogue in this movie that uh, around the, the trucker scene. There's a bit where the guy says, Smooth Eddie always looks good, which I like. Uh, you know, a lot of decent cheese dick lines like that popping off. And it's, uh, it, you know, it's around this time in the movie, post-plod post big reveal that we're dealing with the mutant cockagina rocket penis that we're starting to see a little bit more flair i think behind the lens in terms of some of those night shots um and then you're right it starts to kick off big time the the, the frightening parallels between what happens in montreal and covid were, were hitting me quite hard yeah that was a vaccine thing. cards and like having to have your vaccine card to go places and stuff that was kind of creepy the canadian cop machine gunning santa was an absolute peak for me i thought it was fantastic it's always like it's almost out of a different movie right it almost like they just sort yeah. of borrowed a scene from a wholly different film and the i whole love that mole scene yeah yeah 
maybe there was a few ideas there that were kind of glued together and it worked in terms of you know where it was in the movie pretty sure that's a scene where rose is in the mall and she's like seeing it happen and it's just like it's not her anymore it's it's out there it's in the world and like she's like horrified by it because she's got no fucking idea what's what's happening yeah even though she does know because she goes home and she's like oh shit is it me yeah, we're never again. We're never really sure what she thinks, what she knows, or what she's trying to do necessarily, or yeah. how much of it is compulsion, how much of it is indulgence. I never thought I'd say this, but maybe she doesn't verbalize enough of her motivation because I hate it when people verbalize their motivation. But like, just a couple of like more. I mean, those phone calls are fairly useful, I guess, but they're kind of garbled and hysterical. So yeah, that's well, like, when she's the, calling her boyfriend. The scene, the scene after the mall scene, I think is when she's back in the apartment and her friend's like, I'm going to look after you. Mm. She's like, no, I need to go out. She's like, you can't go out. I, he's like, She's like, I don't want it to be you. Yeah. So like, we know that she knows something at that point. But then when yeah. she speaks to Hart, like two scenes later, she's like, I didn't do anything wrong. It's not me. Yeah. So well, that also felt kind of unnecessary, the conversation with the roommate, because we know that she's trying not to kill her we can tell by everything that's happening she locks herself in the bathroom she's you know all these things so i would have liked that exposition somewhere else potentially but i didn't think the the best friend you know temporary roommate character was was all that bad i thought she was okay (laughs) i'm trying to think of nice things to say performance was solid um but again not not really given enough to to push the movie forward they could have put them in some really interesting positions i think and given some a little bit more on the moral dilemma side of things to carry that final third of the movie. Well, they, what, do um, of, what do you think of the ending? Because, oh boy. I like the ending. I, I think it's something that if I was in her position, I would do. Right. Like, I know that I'm hurting people. Whether I'm giving them rabies and turning them into zombies is a different thing. But I know that I'm hurting people with my armpit, vagina, penis spike. So I can't do this forever. Like it's not sure. sustainable to be uh, an armpit penis stabber. You make it sound like being unemployed. This is not sustainable. I need to, <laughs> the whole of Montreal is like eating each other. Well, so wh- why don't you explain what happens in the ending, and and we can we can figure it out. Right. So there's a there's a scene where um, Rose is talking to Hart, who's her boyfriend, who is. As we said, completely ineffectual. This is the one scene where he serves some sort of purpose. Sure. And he explains that she's the cause of the rabid outbreak zombie attack thing. Somewhat insensitively. Yeah. Well. A lot of screaming. How do you explain that sensitively? A coffee shop, like a public place, like (laughs) like like a breakup somewhere safe, like. Imagine that I'm I'm the guy that caught syphilis off the monkeys, and now I'm giving it to everybody else. And you and you know this. I like know how, this. How how do you have that conversation with me? I I sit you down, bud. <laughs> I, I don't lay out the facts coldly and dispassionately. I try and try and tell a story. I try and look you in the eye. He's screaming. They're like shaking each other around. They're going nuts. Yeah. So the tensions so, yeah. were running high. Emotions were you know at a peak. Yeah. So then she goes. She goes and finds a nice clean man, takes him home to his place, stabs him with a armpit penis, and then waits to see what happens. He's, yeah. gonna be, he's probably going to be fine. He isn't fine. Absolutely. No. Then she's dead. She dies mm. on the phone to heart, and then she's 
somehow in the street. Don't know how that happens. Yep. And the militia army bin men come and put her in a bin truck. In a weird slow motion, she's lifted up and put in the back of a bin lorry. I think I think the 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 vibe there is like basically because she's patient zero. Hmm. She is the one thing that could save everybody. Right. But she's just getting mushed up at the end, like everybody else. Yeah. Well, a a thing that I really like about the end, which is, I mean, I quite like the ending generally. I think it's quite, quite sort of scientific and human to be like, I'm going to prove you wrong by doing the thing that I've been doing the whole time. And we know that it's not going to work. But the thing that I really like, and this is bullshit, so whatever, is when the credits start, it's like they're being pulled up by the uh, by like the, the thing in the in the yeah, back I of the bin lorry. Well. I yeah. really I it's love that. It's kind of in time with how the bin fit. Again, that's kind of funny to me. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's like taking out the trash, movie's over. Like yeah. I love that. I thought that worked really well. And I was so baffled by this ending. I just felt so disappointed because again, like you said, the tension and the the, the pace and the pitch and everything was raised. To a point where I felt like nothing really happened. Like the ending dilemma seemed kind of dumb to me. It seemed like a foregone conclusion. It seemed like there was no real mystery. Like nobody, everybody involved knew what was going to happen. Nobody was surprised. The surprise for me was that she ended up outside somehow. (laughs) And I was like, what did I miss? (laughs) She fly out the window or something. I thought she was alive. I thought she was laying in the street alive because her eyes were open. And then I realized she was dead. So I've gone from like, Oh, this is a bit disappointing. To oh my god, what's that? Oh, oh no, she's de- oh now it's slow mo. Like the slow mo <laughs> into the back of the thing was a little bit much for me. And then the credits made it all okay. But yeah, <laughs> but like I think I think because because everybody in the world knows what's happening apart from her. Sure, that that scene isn't about like being surprised or or learning something new. It's about watching her realize that she is a been the cause of all of this murder and violence and mm. be getting eaten to death by a rabid man. Yeah. I think there's something being said there about the waste of it all, potentially. But what I was struggling to tie up thematically is she's binned, it's a waste. What's the link to plastic surgery again? That was my I yeah. wanted there to be a plastic surgery theme running through this and it's not like pure vanity plastic surgery in the movie there's a tiny scene in there where there's a girl talking about her daddy wants her nose to be different or whatever but even she's not played as like a horrible vein you know vapid whatever she's just sort of there and then she's gone and everyone else seems to be being treated for horrible accidents or like you know cosmetic plastic surgery because of a you know horrific burn or you know a real you know a problem something's happened and that isn't their fault so I wanted a little bit more link up there, I think, in terms of like what's being said about plastic surgery or society or waste or, you know, why why does this plague get so completely out of hand? Why is it dealt with in the way that it's dealt with? It all feels like a lot of unfinished ideas to me, which, you know, I've got no problem with. We watched a lot of movies with a lot of unfinished ideas that haven't been total flops in terms of resonance with me personally. But I just didn't feel the themes connecting really at the end. Maybe I was tired. Who knows? Well, no, because I'm... I don't see the the plastic surgery theme carrying through yeah. either. I don't. I I don't understand what the what what Cronenberg is trying to say about plastic surgery here. Yeah. Besides the fact that it is, I don't know, modern Frankensteinism or whatever, like sure. creating monsters or p- potential to go wrong horribly or or whatever. But like, besides that, like I don't. 
I don't see the like the human story that, that he's trying to tell about plastic surgery. Mm. I think it's much more a story about sexual desire and not being able to control your sexual desire and like how intimacy is something that is like severely lacking but also that we desperately need i never really considered this before but i think there's something really intimate about zombie films Mm. and the the attacks they're they're really like the inevitability of it the the, Mm. the 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 need for like proximity the fact that yeah, it's, I, I don't, can't qualify it. I'd never really considered it before, so it's a bit of a half-baked thought. But obviously we know that, particularly in slow-moving zombie films, I hate that we live in a world where we have to fucking specify what you mean by a zombie What film. kind of zombie, yeah. Yeah. And like, I don't hate fast zombies, but like, they're a different thing. They should yeah, have a different... it's a totally different genre. Like, yeah. I, I totally hear what you're saying. I, I get, do you know what? I, that actually makes a lot of sense to me because there is, there is something being said, I think, about the danger of the closeness and intimacy in a zombie movie. It might be super subliminal and it might be us reading into it way too much, but the fact that the thing that's closest to you kills you or, or makes you completely emotionally dead as well as you know physically dead apart from a tiny little broken part of your brain that compulsively does the same thing to other people, that's saying something about love in my opinion. And I've always kind of felt that way, especially with slow moving zombies. But may- maybe you're right. Maybe this movie is... In, in in a way that, uh, you know, maybe I'm not sharp enough to, to fully pick up and put, put together all the way through. Maybe it's saying something about how modernity, maybe plastic surgery is some kind of microcosm for modernity. Maybe modernity mutates us to have a, a warped relationship with intimacy. And that brings about this predatory Venus flytrap dynamic that ultimately ends up with everyone infected, everyone destru- destructive, everyone violent, and then ending with horrible waste that might be that might be it i mean that's incredibly cool now that i think of it <laughs> <laughs> yeah no but i i think that's that's what cronenberg is going for here i think right. i think i think you're right i think that that subtext is is there maybe like fairly deep in like mm. other zombie films uh, that came out since night of the living dead but yeah. i think what cronenberg is 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 doing here is is saying it out loud sure um, I think you're right. I think plastic surgery is the is the modern thing. If they mm. made it today, it, maybe it would be TikTok or phones. Yeah, yeah, or yeah. whatever. And maybe that's it. It's not as on the nose to us because we're out of sync with the, the the period a little bit. Yeah, maybe it's done well because it's done subtly. It doesn't outwardly demonize. You know, he's not a flashy plastic surgeon or like an arrogant. You know, nobody's caricatured to to bring out the the evil or the lack of humanity in, in, in that particular aspect of the character. Maybe that's it. Maybe it's done better than, than I'm giving it credit for. It's, I mean, it's taken me a good sort of two hours of like verbal processing out loud to get to where we are now. <laughs> so maybe it's buried a little bit too much for a, you know, for a mainstream audience. But through that lens, I think there's a lot of, a lot of stuff that has value in this movie. And I think it was interesting enough to keep me thinking about the theme. I wasn't just thinking about it because we, we were going to talk about it on the podcast. Mm. Uh, you know, I was thinking about it all day and kind of pausing and being like, but what's happening here? What's the real message? Which is good because it shows there's hooks and there's, there's, there's a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of a tease there. Yeah. I think the thing that, I think the thing that really sells this to me as a solid theory mm. is some people are sort of mindless and 
devoid of personality and they're just doing it because they have to do it. But some people are really fucking enjoying it. Mm. Like the woman on the bus or the sure. underground train or whatever it is. She goes like, nuts. She is, she is stoked. Yeah. She's having a great time. Yeah. The half a chicken to go guy. Yeah. Like he, he is giving it his all. He's not just like. True. He's not mindlessly chomping someone because he needs the iron and the blood or whatever. It's yeah, like, it's not like a brains thing, is it? I mean, the, even the doctor, you know, he hacks off the end of that finger and just gobbles and sucks like it's an all-you-can-eat buffet. You know, he he went for it big time. And and quite an impressive little scene there, I thought. Again, it didn't, it didn't kind of shock or scare me that much, but I enjoyed watching it. I enjoyed watching what the doctor did with his, you know, psycho, psychotic uh, flesh hunger. The foaming mouth I thought was a great touch and obviously with a movie with a title like Rabid you're going to expect that. Yeah. I wanted a little bit more I find rabies fascinating like any any book I've ever read or any kind of fictional world where rabies is the you know part of the antagonist or or whatever I, I find it really interesting that it's in the brain yeah. and that it you know it just Everything about rabies is really interesting to me. So I was kind of bummed for it not to be rabies as well, I think. For my is, the, is there much out there besides Cujo? Uh, there's Chuck Palahniuk's, uh, is it Rent? Oh, yeah, I've not read that. It's rabies-tastic. It's really good. It's I think, if I remember correctly, it's been a long time since I read it. But there's like a group of kids who they kind of get high off getting rabies and giving rabies to people, I think is what I remember it being about. Like That's a, like, like kids, but it's rabies instead of AIDS. Exactly, punks giving each other uh, rabies. But, I mean, Cujo, I think, is great because Cujo's controversially one of my favourite Stephen King books, top three, I would say. But, you know, aside from that, just reading about what the disease actually is and does, like, in a factual sense, is really interesting to me, you know. So I wanted there to be more, because I like brain stuff. You know, I like, mm. you know, par- parasites in, in the brain and infections, bacterial brain infections, stuff like that. It's really interesting especially if it changes your psychology in a way that doesn't just make you a zombie because rabies is quite complex, all the phases of rabies and the way that it develops and what you go through as a person, with a human with rabies, as well as animals. So maybe I was expecting a little bit more of that and didn't get it and was disappointed from the beginning and maybe that's why it sort of tainted my viewing of this a little bit. But the more we comb through it, the more I see a hell of a lot of uh, you know flakes of gold that led us to the Cronenberg that we all know and love further down the line. You know, more bites of the Cronenberger. We're getting more satisfied as time goes on. Without this, I don't think there's any way he would have got to some of the classics, you know. This was obviously a, a proving ground and a, a big test of a lot of different uh, aspects of what would make him an auteur, I think it's safe to say. Yeah. And I think, like, you obviously see this as part of the catalogue of a director that you love. So where does it sit for you in terms of, like, your relationship with the other movies? I don't know. It's almost like a, a cliff notes into the psyche of, like, a young Cronenberg. Sure. And like where, like you say, like a proving ground, where he formed those ideas, where he mm. like, where he fairly amateurishly, I would say, mm. like try to verbalize and, and visualize the things that are in his fucked up brain. Mm. It's it's weird because I think that this sits at like a, a weird hinterland of like home movie and like actual movie. Like the like the, the decisions, like we said, they're 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 really challenging. Sometimes mm. that's really good and sometimes it's not. But um, I don't know if it's budget because this didn't get... I don't, I, I'm not quite sure off the top of my head what the budget for Shivers was. Mm. But, I, but I suspect Shivers didn't... Shivers was received quite badly because it's quite, again, quite challenging mm. and a lot more overtly sexual 
than than this, which is also just quite sexual generally. Sure. But so I feel like this is less accomplished than his first film, and that might just be that he had all of the ideas. Like, and this is second album syndrome, where he's got a, he's had twenty years or whatever to come up with shivers. Although he was making shorts and stuff around the time, mm. he made a really good short, maybe just before shivers, called Crimes of the Future. He's just released a movie called Crimes of the Future, so I'm interested to see if they're remotely linked, whether cool. he just thinks the phrase. Crimes of the Future is a cool phrase. It's a thing. Yeah. It's 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 weird because it's a step back in mm. terms of, of visual style. But I think in terms of like forming those those ideas or finding a language to, to share those ideas, I think it's mm. really I think there's a, a a lot to like about it. I'm under no illusion that it's it's not the fly. Yeah. I wasn't looking Thankfully, I wasn't looking for the fly. Do you know what I mean? I think it's really unfair to hold someone like Cronenberg, who has, I think, horror masterpieces in his catalogue. You can't hold every movie up against that, I don't think. You couldn't have a catalogue that consistent front to back, especially late 70s, low-budget French-Canadian horror movie. Yeah. I also think there's no crime in having a slow-paced, semi-formulaic, but interesting movie in your catalogue. You know, because we we, we, we treat every, like, not failure, but everything we don't like in, in the catalogue of an artist we treat as a failure, you know. So it's refreshing to, to adopt the stance of not being as dismissive of a piece of art <laughs> as a lot of people are nowadays and not just writing off the entire movie because I think even though I didn't like it, I, I, like, like you said, there's a lot of merit there. It's, it's an awesome peek into the process that gets him to stuff like The Fly. And it's cool to, to sort of zoom out on a catalogue and think, right, everything has its place. Like you said, this is maybe second album type stuff. You can see where he grew and what he got rid of and how he trimmed the fat in his editing and filmmaking in general. So, yeah, I, I think it was... Uh, I had to watch it in two halves, I'll be totally honest. I found it <laughs> ploddy to that extent. And I I watched Dragged Across Concrete with Mel Gibson in one sitting a couple of weeks ago. So I've got stamina for that kind of stuff. So it really didn't do it for me. But I love the the zoomed out approach of looking at it as part of a bigger picture. And I think that he he did a lot of really interesting stuff in this movie that for the time was pretty brave, and especially in terms of uh, you know what else was coming out at the time, pretty against the grain. So much respect to the Cronenberger himself, and I'm glad it happened because it gave us some awesome stuff later on down the line. I enjoy watching a movie knowing that it's not from a a, a place of like you know drunken nonsense. You know, it's not Halloween two. It's not like a you know it's my specific head trip and my you know my perception of reality and etc cetera, etc. Cetera. It's like I'm trying to do this. I'm going to do it with the tools available. I'm going to do it with a clear mind. I always enjoy knowing that's happening when it's happening to me. Cronenberg is trying just to give you straight up what's in his head without any mm. flowery bullshit. But it turns out just what's in his head is super fucked up. <laughs> yeah, it just happens to be cool <laughs> ideas about really horrible shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which I, again, respect front to back. And, you know, any attempt to make that a reality that comes out as like a 90-minute movie that's, that's totally watchable is is a victory against the forces of homogenized, boring, uninspired bullshit in the world. So I take my hat off to the man. I think it's uh, even Cronenberg's worst movies are worth watching. Absolutely. I take off my knotted handkerchief. <laughs> I peel mine off at this point. Bring it out for you, Mr. Cronenberg. How how do we end this? Do we just like lock ourselves in a room together until one of us kills the other one? 
<laughs> Whoever ends up in the garbage truck wins. Wins? <laughs> I would say good night, David Cronenberg, and thank you very much, regardless of whether we liked it or not. It was a movie. Thank you. It was a movie. <laughs>